Well, good morning, everybody. How are you? All right, all right. Lively bunch we got here. Well, it is uh, good to be here. I'm excited to be able to uh, have the opportunity to share with you today. I also want to say welcome to uh, all of you, especially any first-time guests, and also all of our family out at Stone Canyon, and anybody who might be watching online. We are glad that you guys are with us today. Um, Over the past couple of weeks, we've been in this series called Uncommon, uh, where we've gone through some of the minor prophets. If you haven't gotten, if you've missed uh, one of those, uh, haven't got a chance to yet, I encourage you to go online and uh, catch back up. Matt's done a fantabulous job so far getting us kicked off. Um, And uh, next week, Chad will pick back up, and so we're excited for that. But today, we are going to be in the book of Micah, if you want to join us, if you want to follow along in that, we're going to be in the book of Micah. Uh, Before we dive into the text, uh, let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer together today. God, we thank you so much for your word. For your truth, God, uh, which instructs us in all things, Um, God, we do ask that, uh, God, that you would forgive us when we do not live up to your standards. Uh, God, when we do not represent you well, when we do not uh, act as the people whom you have called us to be. Uh, God, we uh, just throw ourselves at your mercy, and we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. God, we pray that you would show us what it means to walk in your ways, God, I pray that through your word today uh, that you would open our eyes and our ears and our hearts. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear, God, what you would have us to say. Thank you for your son, Jesus, who through his death on the cross gives us grace and mercy. God, is his name we pray. Amen. Well, uh, before we get started today, um, I have a little confession uh, to make to you. Uh, We all have our strengths and weaknesses, things that we are good at, things that we are not so good at, Um, and over the years as I have gotten to uh, know myself better, I have grown more and more to understand and to realize that I am a bad gift giver. It's true. It's true. I'm just not good at giving gifts. I imagine that I am probably not the only, is anyone else in here afflicted with the disease of bad gift giving? It's okay, all right, a few, there are, this actually makes my heart happy. There was only one person in first service who was honest, so you guys are much more in the good graces of our Lord and Savior, so congratulations to you. But I'm just simply not a very good gift giver. Um, In my uh, pride, I would like to pretend that it's not true, that I am fantastic at this, but the reality is I am simply not. Uh, And they say that uh, the first step to healing is to admit that you have a problem, so here I am. I struggle with giving good gifts, uh, with good meaningful gifts. Um, And it is uh, difficult because in my house, we have just kind of gone through birthday season. We've got a lot of birthdays clustered together in mid-late spring and in summer. So this is kind of the time where I go into panic attack mode, and I'm not really sure what I'm supposed to do. But fortunately, in our house, my wife, Laura, does most of the shopping for gifts and stuff like that, and for good reason. And so that is good. And yet, uh, there are still things like Christmas and anniversaries, and Valentine's Days, things like this, where there are all kinds of occasions where you know, you recognize that gifts are just expected, right? It's just what we do. 
And so when it comes to these times, I probably, like many of you, am a kind of guy who would like a list, right? Right? When it comes to Christmas, you say, just make a list of all the things that you want, and I'll do my best to go and try and make you happy by getting everything that I can on that list. It's not that I don't want to be creative or whatever. I'm just not that great at it. Guys, any of you the same way as me? Now, of course, one of the other problems is, especially for ladies, you don't want us to get you just something on the list, right? You want something that is from our hearts, right? Especially Valentine's Day, anniversary, you know, those sorts of things come, and uh, we ask you, okay, what do you want? It's not exactly the most romantic gesture in the whole world. I see a couple elbows nudging, all right, I'm not the only person. And so, and I know for a lot of you ladies, sometimes that can be kind of frustrating for you, right? Uh, It can be difficult for you. You may think, why does he even need a list? I've been dropping hints for who knows how many months now of the things that I want. Can he possibly be that dense? And the answer is, yes, we most certainly can be. (laughs) All right, hopefully you're still with us when we get to the scripture. You see, it's not that we don't want to make you happy. It's just that sometimes we get it wrong, right? And so we want a list, something in black and white that we can go and we can just check it off. Um, But the problem is that over time it becomes really easy to offer things because we're simply supposed to. We give cards because we have to, because it's expected of us. And what begins sometimes as a sincere desire to please somebody turns into just an expectation, a tradition, a routine, dare I even say a ritual. See, instead of being an act of love from our heart, we find ourselves just simply saying, what do I need to do to make you happy? Has anybody else been there? Well, it seems that this is where we would find Israel in the book of Micah. And we are going to be in chapter 6, so if you want to join us there, if you're using the Bibles that are in the pews near you, we're on page 923 to make it easy for you. But uh, in this series, uh, as we've been going through these minor prophets, what happens a lot of times in the prophets is uh, Israel, God's people, they begin to wander astray from what God has called them to do or to be. See, God has called out his people, Israel, to be different, to be set apart. In fact, so many of the laws that we read in the Old Testament are not just moral things. These are ritual things, things to set them apart from the other people, to be different, to be uncommon, to be holy, which doesn't just mean pure and free of sin. It can carry that connotation, but to be holy means to be set apart, to be called out for different purposes, to be uncommon. And through these prophets, we see oftentimes where Israel has begun to wander astray. They begin looking like the people around them. They want the things that the other nations want. They do the things that the other nations do. They even maybe worship God in the same way that other nations try to worship their gods. And so here in the book of Micah, we see that God's people have begun just looking like everybody else. After all, we all want to fit in, don't we? 
And so instead of being God's people and being set apart, being holy, being uncommon, they start to look like everybody else, and so God puts them on trial. Let's pick up in verse 1 of chapter 6, and we'll read through the text today, and here's what it says. It says, listen to what the Lord says. Stand up, plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, O mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth, for the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. So God is filing a case against Israel, against his people. You could say he's pressing charges against his people. Uh, In fact, this whole chapter, chapter 6, reads like a legal trial in biblical times. The whole thing sounds like we're in a courtroom. Now, I am by no means, I am far from an expert in ancient legal proceedings, but I did watch a lot of Judge Judy as a kid, and a lot of the things are still the same today. So you have two parties, right, that enter into a, a legally binding contract, and one of them breaks it, right? And so the other person files a charge, they bring them to court, they have a a judge or someone to hear their case, they present evidence, and they call witnesses. And that's exactly what God is doing. He's pressing his charges, he's laying out his case. He even calls his witnesses. Now, if you have God and you have all the people, then Who can be a witness? If God is putting the people on trial, who are his witnesses? Well, he says, even the very hills, the mountains, even the everlasting foundations of the earth, God calls as witnesses against the people of Israel who have broken their covenant. And so that leads me to ask the question, well, what is this covenant? What is this this legal contract that they have broken? Uh, what, what have they done to break this contract with God? We actually can read about it in the book of Exodus. Now, you guys remember at the beginning of Exodus, God takes his people, the Israelites, and they've been crying out under slavery and oppression from the Egyptians. And they cry out to God, and God hears the cry, and so he rescues them, rescues them out of the bondage uh, in Egypt. He comes and he saves them, and then he sets up his covenant with his people. You remember We can actually read part of it in Exodus chapter 6, starting at verse 4. And here's what it says. God says, I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, where they resided as foreigners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord. And I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people. And I will be your God. Now, this is a contract. It's a covenant. But this doesn't read like the normal civil contracts that we might think about or find today, right? This actually sounds a little bit more like like a relationship. And now, I've never presided over a court case before, but I have done a handful of marriage ceremonies, and this sounds a lot to me like wedding vows. Did you catch that? I will take you as my own 
people, and I will be your God. And they enter into a legal contract when two people make a commitment to one another to love and to be faithful to one another, no matter what the circumstances are. And so God enters into a covenant relationship with his people. And so we pick back up in verse 3. Here's what it says. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, counseled, and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. And so God lays out his own faithfulness in the covenant. Now, if we read through all of the Old Testament and we see all of God's workings through Israel, there are way too many things that God has done for his people. There's way too many stories, way too many examples of God's righteousness and God's faithfulness to be able to list them all. You can't list them all. And so instead, what God does is gives an overview of how he has been faithful from the beginning all the way to the end. He reminds them, don't you remember when I rescued you out of Egypt? I bought you, I took you out of slavery, out of bondage. And then not only that, but I I gave you leaders like Moses to to lead you and direct you. And you remember remember what what Balak wanted, right? When when he wanted Balaam to, to curse you as a nation, but instead of curses, I gave you blessings. I protected you from harm and gave you blessing instead. And remember your journey from here to there, all the way to the very end, I was with you and I led you and I walked with you all the way to the land that I promised you. In other words, in all things, God has been righteous. God has been faithful. God has upheld his end of the contract but God's people. So, so what is God calling them out for? What have, they, what have they done? How have they broken this contract? Actually, we read about this a few verses later in verse 9 in Micah chapter 6. Here's what God charges them with. It says, Listen, the Lord is calling to the city, and to fear your name is wisdom. Heed the rod and the one who appointed it. Am I still to forget a wicked house? your ill-gotten treasures, and the short ephah, which is accursed? Shall I acquit a man with dishonest scales, with a bag of false weights? Her rich men are violent, her people are liars, and their tongues speak deceitfully. And so, they are acting wickedly not as God has called them to live. They are doing things like taking false measurements in order to get a little bit extra from somebody else or to get a little bit more money to to somehow tip the scales in their favor. They're not treating one another fairly. They're acting wickedly. They're oppressing the weak. They're taking advantage of one another. They're violent. They speak deceitfully, and they're lying to one another. But I wonder... Was that, was that part of the contract? Was that, was that part of the agreement? 
Because this relationship, after all, is between God and his people, right? So does it really matter how they treat one another as long as they're right with God? As long as they worship God, as long as they're faithful to him, does it really matter how they treat one another? Well, the answer is yes. Yes, absolutely it does. You remember when God laid out the covenant for his people, he gave them the Ten Commandments. Let us not forget that six out of those ten laws are designed for how we treat one another, how we are to love and care for one another. And Israel's not done so. So God's people are out of step with him. And God has called them to be different. God has called them to be holy. God has called them to be uncommon. God has called them to be a different kind of people. And why? Well, to stand out, to be uncommon, so that all the nations around them, when they look at Israel, they say, surely they worship the one true God. They'll recognize that the God of Israel is the God of the whole world, the God of all creation. And yet, here they are. They're acting just like everybody else. Just like the the nations around them, they're doing what they do. They're just looking out for number one, looking out for themselves, trying to get what they can get. And they're just as bad as everyone else. I, I wonder, I wonder, church, I wonder how different we are. Are we really that different? Do we look different from the people around us? Or do we just, you know, do what everybody else does? Well, it's not that big of a deal. It's just a little white lie. I fudged a couple numbers here or there just, you know, for, for, uh, to gain a little bit extra money, to do a little bit better on this deal. I may, you know, lie once in a while. but, But really, doesn't everybody do that? I just, I just want to be like everyone else. I just want to fit in. And everybody does this. It's not that big of a deal, is it? But God's called us to be different. So are our lives reflecting the glory of a holy and good and just and righteous God? I am a 90s kid, and if there are any other 90s kids, you probably remember what I'm talking about. But the greatest Christian band of all time, of course, if you grew up in the 90s, is DC Talk. And so one of the thing, whoop, whoop, uh, so one of the uh, on one of their albums at the beginning of one of the songs, I remember this quote that they say at the at the beginning of the song, and perhaps if you've heard it, you'll remember. And this is not scripture, but I think it still rings true. They said the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and then walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. So ask us, church, are, are we different? Do we look different than everybody else? You know, I would like to say that I hope so. Unfortunately, you can look at all kinds of statistics that say uh, there's not much of a difference between those who go to church and those who do. The way we lie, the way we cheat, the way we treat marriage, the way we do whatever. 
Sometimes it's almost indistinguishable whether you are part of the church or whether you are not. So, what do we do? What do we do when we've been called to be something different and yet we fall short? How do we make that right? How do we please God? Well, we can see Israel's response in verse 6 as we pick up again. They've been caught, they've been called out by God because of their unfaithfulness, because of their wicked deeds, and so this is how they respond. In verse 6 they say, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? With 10,000 rivers of oil, shall I offer my firstborn for my transgressions, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And so Judah, in particular, God's people, they see their faults and they recognize that they are no longer righteous before God. They have broken their covenant. And so now they begin to say, okay, what do we do? How do we make this right? What, what do you want from me, God? How can, we, how can we make you happy? How can we please you, God? How can we make it right? We'll, we'll offer any sacrifice. We'll give you any gift you want. Just let us know how to make it up to you. Just give me a list. Just tell me what to do, and, and we'll do it. Right? You know, there's a difference between trying to please someone and trying to appease someone. See, Judah and Israel, they've, they've not tried to please God. Now they're simply trying to appease God through external actions, through traditions, through rituals. You ever been there before? The problem is they've been living completely out of step with God, and now they're trying to cover it up with rituals. Uh, when I was in junior high, I had a friend that we spent a lot of time together, and by the grace of God, we weren't friends for a really long time because he wasn't maybe the best of influences on me, but one time, uh, I was over at his house, and I think I went over to the spin of the night over the, over the weekend, and, and so we were, you know, hanging out and playing and doing whatever junior high kids do. Well, in the course of the evening, we had gone out into the backyard. It was kind of becoming dark, and he had this big, uh, one of those big, you know, play forts where they've got a, uh, you know, a big uh, fort up in the top and the slides and all that kind of stuff. So we're up there, and we're uh, just hanging out. Well, what he did was he brought out uh, something that he had hidden in his room. He brought out a couple magazines for uh, us to look at that two junior high boys had absolutely no business looking at. You know what I mean. Actually, no boys have any business looking at, but there we were. But uh, over time, I kind of realized, I was kind of convicted on the inside. I, I was like, I don't think that we should be doing this. I, I don't think this is right. I, I don't think this is appropriate. And so I kind of mentioned it, but he sort of just shrugged it off, blew it off, and we just kind of went about our business. But, but then finally, it just really caught up to me. I was just kind of eating alive on the inside. And I said, you know, I, I, just, I just don't think this is right. I don't think that this is what God wants from us. And so he responded with his infinite junior high wisdom. Okay, how about, uh, how about we'll, we'll look at him now, and then later we'll pray and ask for forgiveness. 
And you all know already, and what I had said, that I'm not sure, I'm not sure it works like that. I, I, I don't think that's, that's how we actually please God. And so we both agreed that it was the wrong thing, and uh, in the uh, infinite wisdom with the you know, geniusness of two junior high boys, we decided, okay, let's get a metal bucket, and we'll light the thing on fire. And so we were up there in the fort, and we were ripping off a couple pages. We got about two or three pages, and eventually the whole fort was just overflowing with smoke billowing out, and we were coughing and choking and decided, maybe we'll just throw it away and take out the trash. So we did, but you guys get it, right? There's a difference between pleasing someone and appeasing someone. Do we ever try to appease God? Is that really what we're after? That's what Israel here is saying is, what can we do to make it right, to make you happy? What can we sacrifice? Surely we don't do this today. Surely this is an Israel thing, right? You know, maybe if I just go to synagogue once or twice more this month, and God will be okay with me. Maybe if I drop a couple extra shekels in the uh, offering plate, then that'll make up for what I did on Tuesday. Too many times I've heard things like, are you a Christian? Oh yeah, oh yeah, I go to church. And we think that somehow these external things are going to make us right. They're going to tip the scales of justice in our favor. As long as we do enough right things to cover up our wrong things, then God will be happy with us. Isn't that what we're trying to do? What I wonder is... Is that, really, is that really what God wants from us? I'm not sure that it is. I'm not sure that that's how it works. Maybe that's why in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus was talking with people and he says, there's going to be a lot of people who say, Lord, look, Lord, look, we, we prophesied in your name. Look, did you, did you see those demons? We cast out demons in your name. Look at all the mighty works that we did in your name. We've checked off everything on your list. And yet Jesus says, no, depart from me, because I never knew you. So what does Jesus want? What's, what's on his list? How do we really please God? I love Micah says in verse 8 here. He says, He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to act justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. You see, it's not just about these external things by somehow trying to tip the scales in our favor. If we can just do enough good things, God will be satisfied with that. No. How do we please God? What God wants is a heart that follows after him. I love in 1 Samuel 15, 22, Samuel replied, he says, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice and to heed is better than the fat of rams. What God wants is our obedience. What God wants is our hearts. And too many times we try to offer him something else. Oh, well, you know, it's better to ask for forgiveness than permission, right? 
What God desires from us is not a rote religion, a ritual, but what God wants from us is a heart for Him, a relationship with Him that overflows into goodness towards others, a heart that acts justly, that loves mercy, and walks humbly with God. Now, here's the problem. How do we do that? Especially, how do we simultaneously act justly and love mercy? How do we be a people of justice and be a people of mercy? Uh, because at first blush, this, this seems like these are two things that stand in contradiction to one another, to me at least. It's like if we want to make a short definition for the two, we could say justice is getting what he deserved, right? And mercy is not getting what he deserved. So, so how do we do that? How do we live in this tension of being people both of justice and people of mercy? Any people who have raised kids, any parents, recognize sometimes the difficulty in this, right? Your, your children do something, and you, you want to teach them uh, discipline. You want to be just to them, act justly. But at the same time, your, your heart goes out to them, and you want to offer them mercy. And so we kind of struggle sometimes. And how do we do this? How do we live in that tension? I saw this video we'll show in just a second. There was a dad who had the exact same problem. He found his boys, his young boys, had gotten into uh, a lot of paint and made a big mess in the house. And so you can see here in this video his tension in wanting to give truth and discipline and justice to them while struggling with it at the same time. We've got this video for you. Why don't you watch? Do you think you guys should have timeouts? You don't think so? Do you think I should not give you guys any more juice? <laughs> what is funny? Nothing's funny, bud. You have, you guys have paint everywhere. In the hair, daddy? <laughs> in your hair, daddy? Yeah, in your hair. Yeah, you have it all over your face. Yeah. And um, my head? How, how do you think we're going to get this paint off? My head now? <laughs> what is funny? <laughs> what is funny? Nothing funny, but... You guys are going to be in a timeout, you know that, right? Nope. Yep. I don't think this is funny at all. It's not funny. You guys are in big trouble. Both of you guys are in big trouble. Both of you guys are in big trouble. Both of you guys are in big, big trouble. Yeah. Big trouble? <laughs> I don't know if you've ever been there. One day I uh, came out to the kitchen and discovered my daughter was wearing only a diaper and had painted herself and the refrigerator and the kitchen floor with peanut butter. It was fantastic. What do you do? 
when we're called to be both people who are people of justice and people of mercy? How, how do we live in that tension? And for transparency, I, I have struggled with this a lot both as, as a parent, as a, a follower of Jesus, I've, I've struggled with this idea of balancing justice and mercy. Because you see, on the one hand, like, I like justice. Justice is simple and easy. It's neat and clean. You get what you deserve. You do the crime, you do the time. You've made your bed, now you have to sleep in it. Justice is fair, and we like fair. But yet, on the other hand, we love mercy and grace, to be released from the burden of guilt and shame, to not have to get what we really deserve. And so I've wondered, how do these things, how do these two things coexist together? I think I've come to realize that maybe I've had a wrong understanding of my role in justice, See, for a long time, maybe I thought about justice as like revenge, right? Well, the person just gets what they deserve. They do something wrong, and so they've got to be paid back for it. But in reality, that's not what justice is. Justice is about restoring things to the way they were originally designed, the way they should be. For example, if I were to take $10 from you to, be, to have justice would be that you get your $10 back, that things be made back and restored to the way that they were originally designed to be, the way they should be. Some people have defined justice as just as if it never happened. And so, acting justly then is not merely about giving people what they deserve. And to be honest, I am grateful for that because Scripture is really, really clear on what I deserve. No. None of us wants what we really, really deserve. And fortunately, through the cross of Jesus, he fully satisfied both justice and mercy in the single act by setting all things right, by taking our punishment, by taking our burden and giving us redemption from sin. Every one of us, that's all that we can hope for is the mercy of Christ. And when we remember this, it becomes really easy to love mercy. So instead, acting justly, towards people. Isn't just trying to give people what they deserve. Instead, acting justly is about treating people the way they were originally designed to be, treating them the way they should be treated, as people made in the image of God and children of our King. So we must treat others as God originally designed them to be regardless of whether or not they look like us, whether they act like us, whether they think like us, whether they talk like us, we must treat, treat them as they should be treated. Regardless of how they voted, regardless of where they come from or what they've done, but instead to treat people the way they should be treated, that is to act justly, to be fair, 
to be honest, to speak with truthfulness and kindness, to love others the way that we have been loved by God. And so, how do we become right before God? How are we righteous before Him? Certainly it can't be by doing external works of righteousness because if that is it, then I am sorry, church, but we have no hope outside of Jesus. We have no hope in ourselves. So how then do we please God? What's on his list? How do we stand right before him? What can we offer to God to make him happy? Well, Micah would say, we walk humbly in a relationship with Christ, which overflows into love for others. Or maybe today we could even say it this way. We love Jesus and we love like Jesus. Let's pray. God, thank you that because of your goodness, you are both just and you are both loving and merciful and we could never exhaust either one of those. Thank you, God, for your goodness, and thank you that your goodness led you to give your Son for us on the cross, that in that act, God, you can both satisfy your justice and your righteousness and your wrath, and yet at the same time offer us mercy. God, help us to love you, help us to walk humbly with you in grace and in truth. Help us to be different, God, so that others, when they see us, they can know that you are the one true God and that they can be drawn into worship to you. But thank you for your son, Jesus, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen.